0: to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Nine weeks ago, I made the insane decision to begin a sermon series through the book of Leviticus. And so if you've made it this far, let me say congratulations. Go ahead, give yourself a pat on the back because we're halfway through Uh, We have journeyed through the hardest parts of Leviticus. We've made it through all the chapters about the sacrifices. We've made it through the ordination of the priests. Last week, we finished the ritual laws of impurity, which are hard chapters, right? And today, we arrive at Leviticus 16. We read about Yom Kippur, or what we know as the Day of Atonement. So if you're visiting with us on this day, this is a glorious day to be here. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, it is on page 112 in the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning, let me tell you that today, we are going to be treading on holy ground. Today, we're going to be studying possibly the most important chapter of the whole Old Testament. Why do I say that? Well, because when the Israelites wrote stories, they wouldn't put the most important stuff near the end as a grand finale. That's what we're used to. But the Israelites would put the most important stuff smack dab in the middle. And Leviticus is one scroll out of five. It's book three of five of the books of Moses. Leviticus was in the middle because this book was central to the Israelites' theology. And that's why traditionally, if you can believe it, the first book children were taught growing up in Jewish homes was Leviticus. And in this book, the centermost chapter of the book of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 16. And in Leviticus 16, we find the center of the center of the Pentateuch, the center of the center of the Torah. Through the eyes of Moses, as he was writing this and designing this, because this was brilliantly designed by Moses, Moses would have seen this as the most important chapter. Of all the books he wrote. Because in this chapter, we get the answer to the most important question there is How can sinners coexist with a holy God? Let me tell you the most terrifying truth in all of Scripture. Let me tell you the most terrifying truth in all of the Bible. The most terrifying truth in all the Bible is this God is good. Now, you may be confused. You may be thinking, Taylor, that's not terrifying at all. That sounds like a good thing that God is good. I want God to be good. And you're right. It is a good thing that God is good. But let me ask you, what does a good God do with people who are not good? If God is good, then he must punish all those who are not good. And the Bible declares to us that that's all of us, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember the question we read earlier from Psalm 14. Oh Lord, who may draw near to your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He whose walk is without blemish and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. How many of you have walked without blemish? How many of you have always done what is right and always spoken the truth? Do you know what it means to even walk without blemish? It's, it means you're without sin. And if you don't believe me, listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, I know they're bad news to us, but back in that day, they were the holiest of the holy men of the day. So that would be like today saying, unless you're holier than the Pope unless you're godlier than the Dalai Lama, unless you're more faithful than Billy Graham, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just in case you might be arrogant enough to think, I might be a little holier than the Pope, just in case that's you, Jesus went on in that same sermon to make himself absolutely clear. And he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Why does he say that? Why is the standard so high? Because the first step on the road to salvation is recognizing that you are not good enough. There is something liberating about saying, I am a sinner. I am not good enough. So I need something outside of myself. I need a savior. I need a sacrifice. And that's the first step on this journey is to recognize that you're a sinner and to recognize humbly that you need a sacrifice, someone to take the the fall for you. And the good news for you and I is that in Leviticus 16, we get a glorious picture of exactly the kind of sacrifice we need. And my prayer this morning is that in the story of this first day of atonement, that you would be able to find peace with God through the sacrifice the Lord has provided. Because in Leviticus 16, we find seven ways we must approach the Lord. Seven ways we must approach the Lord. The first way we must approach the Lord is in humility. Second, we must approach the Lord on his terms. Third, with fear. Fourth, for atonement. Fifth, by a scapegoat. Sixth, to surrender all. And seventh, through a better sacrifice. All these are up on the projector and in your handout. I know there's a lot of it, but we're going to take them one by one as we walk through this chapter. Because Moses just clearly split up this chapter into seven distinct sections with seven points. This chapter is overflowing with glorious truth. So before we dive in, let's pray that God would help us as we try to take it all in. God of all mercy, this morning as we embark to understand your grace towards the Israelites, may we find grace ourselves. Help us to see all the ways that this passage points to Jesus. Then may we grow in our love for him and fall at his feet in worship. And Lord, as, as I preach, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered. By the power of your spirit, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Look to Leviticus 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And we stop there. Even though this is five chapters later, in chapter 16, we jump all the way back into the story of Nadab and Abihu. Remember that God had ordained Aaron and his four sons to the priesthood through this seven-day ordination ceremony. They were meant to be this holy priest serving the Lord in the tent. But on the eighth day, On their very first day on the job, Nadab and Abihu drunkenly march into God's dwelling place, and they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. And so fire comes out and kills both Nadab and Abihu. Now, in chapter 16, verse 1, we're told this is that same day. We're still in the eighth day when Aaron's sons died. Remember, Leviticus is not a collection of random rules. It's the resolution to a problem. And in chapter 16, it's how God resolves the problem of the sin of Nadab and Abihu. So in verse 2, God issues this dire warning. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The tent of meeting was the place where the Israelites were to worship Yahweh. It was where they were to sacrifice and to confess their sins and pray and hear audibly from the Lord. And in the tent, there were these two rooms first the holy place, and then the most holy place, or often called the Holy of Holies. And the only thing separating these two rooms was a veil. But if you passed inside the veil, you would see the the famous Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones. That's not where it became famous. Uh, But on this Ark, it was covered in gold. And inside of it was Aaron's famous staff and a jar of manna and the Ten Commandments. And above this Ark, the lid was called the Mercy Seat. Both because it was the place where the Israelites would receive mercy. And also it was seen as God's throne on earth. You see that in verse two, God will appear in the clouds over the mercy seat, that as incense was being burned in the tent and smoke began to fill the holy of holies, it would be as if clouds were filling the holy of holies. And this would be a place where heaven and earth would meet and God would appear. Now that sounds awesome, but in verse two, that's not a good thing. That's a threat. Because for a sinner to walk into the presence of an all-holy God, that's like throwing a stick of dynamite into a campfire. That's why Aaron is given this dire warning. Never go into the holy of holies so that you may not die. Except there is one instance and one way in which Aaron may go into the holy of holies. And so verse 3 begins, But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. And if you keep reading in verse 3, Moses tells Uh, God tells Moses to grab a bull and a ram, which is nothing new for us, because if you've been with us so far in this series in Leviticus, we've already seen those kind of sacrifices. But then in verse 4, God tells Aaron something surprising. Normally, the high priest wore this crazy colorful uniform with all these jewels, and he's got this golden crown on his turban. Normally, Aaron would be all decked out. He'd be dressed like a king. But in verse four, Aaron is just told to wear the basics, a coat, a linen jacket, a sash, a turban. He is dressed down, which is weird because you think Aaron, if he's gonna appear before God, you're, you wanna wear your best. I mean, that's what I grew up uh, you know, being told in the South. If you go to church, you wear your best because that's, God wants to see your best. But when Aaron goes before the presence of the Lord, he's actually humbled. He's not wearing his crown. He's not wearing the jewels. Why? Because on the day when Aaron was to enter the presence of God, he was to humble himself before the Lord and acknowledge that he was a simple man. And I don't think that it's an accident. But in the New Testament, we're told in the same way, Jesus humbled himself, leaving behind his heavenly robes, leaving behind the glories of heaven by taking on flesh in order to become our earthly high priest. And when Jesus came, he did not come riding in on a white horse like a conquering king, but he came humble riding on a donkey. And then he died the death of a common criminal. But I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I'll tell you, one of my struggles this week, just preparing for the sermon, is that normally when you preach from the Old Testament, you just got to find one nugget, one way that this points to Jesus. Jesus. In Leviticus 16, there's like 10 ways that it points to Jesus. This is so full of Jesus that it's so overwhelming how much the New Testament writers picked up on all this language about Jesus and they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of this chapter. It's glorious. But I've got to put that aside and we're going to move on in our text. In verse 5, we see something interesting. It says, "...and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering." and one for a ram for a burnt offering. Now notice, the two goats count as a single sin offering. It doesn't say take two goats for sin offerings, plural, but a sin offering, which is interesting. We have not seen that before so far in this book. So Aaron in his humble state was to get dressed and then bring all these animals before the tent. And so first, Aaron was to approach the Lord in humility. Second, He was to approach the Lord on the Lord's turn. Look to verse six. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent. And Aaron shall cast lots over the goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, I told you this would be interesting. I didn't tell you it would be easy. Uh, I want to do a quick survey. How many of you in your Bibles, did your Bible say scapegoat? Raise your hand. Anybody? We got a couple. Most translations do say scapegoat the esv which is the version we use on sunday mornings and the rsv both translate it just they take the hebrew word and they put it into english letters because the hebrew word is azazel um, which is not surprising you probably as you were listening long i saw lynn's head pop up you're probably thinking what on earth is an azazel (laughs) and that is a great question but i want you to hold on to your curiosity let's put that question aside for the moment because it's going to come up later So if at all possible, ignoring the identity of this Azazel, the two goats were brought to the entrance of the tent. Aaron would cast lots, which is a lot like rolling rolling dice or drawing straws. It was supposed to be this, this game of chance. And based on how these ancient dice fell, one goat would be decided for the Lord, and Aaron would kill it as the sin offering. But the other goat was to be sent into the wilderness. And through this process of casting lots the Lord is picking which goat is going to be killed and which will be sent into the wilderness through what appeared to be random chance. But remember Proverbs 16:33 the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. There is nothing random that happens in this life. The Lord is sovereign over it all, even the casting of lots. The Lord is setting the terms in the sacrifice that even though Aaron was doing the work, he had to remember that it was the Lord who was running the show. And so he was to approach the Lord on his terms. But he was also called to approach him with fear. Look to verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Stop right there just to remember, Aaron was still a sinner. So before he could even think about going to the tent, he had to first offer a bull for his own sin. And then in verse 12, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. When Aaron enters the Holy of Holies, he has to bring this metal incense burner with him in the tent, and the smoke from the burner would make this cloud from within the tent. Uh, that's where if you've ever been to a Greek Orthodox or a Roman Catholic mass, the priest will often walk down the aisle with this metal censer, and he'll swing it back and forth on a chain, and incense is going up all throughout um, the, the, the church, the sanctuary. That, they get that imagery from Leviticus, this burning incense that covers the glory of God. You're probably wondering what on earth is happen, happening here in verse 13. Well, according to verse 13, because the cloud will cover the mercy seat, that is what's going to save Aaron's life to protect him. That as the smoke filled the Holy of Holies, it would create a kind of veil over God's glory. It would create a cloud. In Exodus, God straight up tells Moses, if any man sees me, he dies. No man can see my glory and live. So the smoke would create a barrier, would protect the priest. And it was because of this constant threat of death in the tent that in later years, it, it became tradition for the high priest to tie a rope around his ankle when he entered the holies of holies. So that in the event that he died, they could just pull him out and they wouldn't have to send someone in there to also die. Uh, this was good and glorious work that Aaron was doing, but it was dangerous work. And any high priest who entered the tent would be a fool to approach the Lord with anything but fear. But if he succeeded in his mission, if he was able to sprinkle the mercy seat and purify the tent, then he could go in again, but this time not to make atonement for himself, but to make atonement for all of Israel. In verse 15, once again, Aaron brings a spotless, innocent animal to the front of the tent. And that innocent life dies for the sin of Aaron and the people. That blameless life is killed as a substitute for the Israelites, and then the blood sprinkled on the altar to purify the tent. I know that's a strange image for us, but blood was the symbol of life. It was the saying, life is in the blood of an animal. So you take this, this life fluid, and you sprinkle it over the tent and over even the priest at times. So this is a picture of life covering death. I know it's strange to us, but it would have been incredibly meaningful to the people back then, that these were common cultural things that they understood. And then in verse 16, oh, verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. In verse 16, something that surprised me is that Aaron is making atonement, not only for Israel, but also for the tent itself. Why does the tent need atonement? Because remember that Leviticus teaches that sin isn't just something that affects you and your relationship with God. Sin is like pollution. Sin is like pollution because it has negative effects on everyone and everything around you. So for instance, we we see this in Deuteronomy 21 where we're told that guilt rests on a place where someone was murdered. And we kind of have that understanding because if you visited ground zero after 9-11, there was a darkness that rested over that area because of the atrocities that occurred because of the sin of those terrorists. So what did we do? Uh, well, we cleared the remains of the building. They built the Freedom Tower there and they built this beautiful memorial where the Twin Towers used to stand. And the city of New York purified Ground Zero and they recreated it into a place to honor the victims of 9-11. And that burden, that, that darkness is, is lifted They've They've sanctified, they've consecrated that place where the atrocity has occurred. And something similar is happening here in verse 16. The pollution of the Israelite sin is like a bunch of toxic chemicals that have been dumped in a river and that pollution has drifted and made it all the way into the tent of meeting. And so that's why Aaron needs to sprinkle the blood seven times on the veil and the mercy seat because the blood acted as this purifying agent to get rid of this pollution, the pollution of death, this image of life covering death. Why seven times? Well, God created the world in seven days. So as the priest sprinkled the veil seven times, it was supposed to be this image of recreation, of new creation. So Aaron was to sprinkle the veil and the mercy seat seven times to purify the tent and to restore the tent to this pure creation-like state so that Aaron could dwell with God just like Adam did in the garden. Uh, The tent of meeting dwelling in the midst of the people, there was one scholar who compared it to an island, that God's tent was this island of holiness and purity in life, And all around him was just a sea and a waves of sin and death and impurity. And all the time, waves are splashing on into this island and infecting the island. And it was through this ceremony that the island was made pure again, that it was a habitable space for God's presence. And that's how an impure, sinful people like Israel could play host to the holy and blameless God of the universe. And here in verse 16, we get the entire book summed up in one verse. Because in verse 16, this is the center of chapter 16. It's easy to remember. Leviticus 16, 16. This is the center of the center of the center of the Torah. And it's all about how a holy God can dwell among an unholy people. You know, the Bible is a book full of history. But this book, this book is not a history book. The Bible is a book full of poetry, but this book is not a poetry book. The Bible is a book full of rules, but the Bible, listen, this book is not a rule book. The Bible is a book about how sinful rebels like you and I can be made right and reconciled to God. This is a book about how we can have our sins atoned for and how we can find everlasting life with God forever. That's why in Revelation. When John sees the new heaven and the new earth, a loud voice declares, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In Leviticus, through the Ten of Meaning, the Israelites were able to live with a piece of heaven on earth so that God could dwell among them. But we're not done yet. Because the Israelites don't just need a blameless life to die for them. They also need someone to carry away their sins. The Israelites need a scapegoat. Look to verse 20. And when he made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. Just notice those are the three bad words for failure, for moral failure in the Bible. It's this comprehensive confession of all of their evil deeds. And then it says, And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness and stop there. Remember this offering of these two goats was considered a single unified sin offering. And for that reason, these two goats were oftentimes called the slaughter goat and the scapegoat. In fact, this passage is where the concept of a scapegoat originates. A scapegoat is one who takes the fall for you, someone who bears the consequences for the sins of another. And so Aaron was to place both hands on the head of this live goat. He was to confess all of the sins and iniquities and transgressions of Israel. And now looking back to verse 10, the goat was to be sent into the wilderness to Azazel. Azazel is the word that is most often translated scapegoat, and I'll say that the idea of scapegoat is definitely in this passage. But I think the translators of the ESV, the version we use, were right to simply put Azazel instead of scapegoat. Why? Because in Hebrew, Azazel doesn't mean scapegoat. It actually, Azazel looks a lot more like a name. And the goat is not being named Azazel because in verse 10, the goat is being sent to Azazel. If Azazel should be scapegoat, then it doesn't make any sense for the goat to be sent to the scapegoat. That doesn't make any sense. So now, I'm sure you're sitting there dying to know who or what on earth is Azazel. Well, most scholars actually conclude that Azazel is some kind of demon of the wilderness. Azazel is a name that can be literally translated powerful spiritual being. Now, you may be wondering, why on earth is God telling the Israelites, to send a goat to this powerful spiritual being that's living outside of Israel? And that's a great question. Let me me share with you the words of one scholar because he explains it incredibly. He says this, This is not a sacrifice. It's an elimination ritual. The biblical prescription does not call for the death of this goat. It is simply sent away as a ritual garbage truck carrying controlled toxic waste to Azazel. The fact that Yahweh is a supernatural being could be taken to imply that Azazel is also a supernatural being. But the animal is not an offering to Azazel, rather the live goat transports Israelite failure to Azazel, who ends up having to take this noxious load. This ritual is an unfriendly gesture to Azazel. It's like someone sending a load of chemical or nuclear waste. Because it's Yahweh who commands the priest to perform the ritual, it appears that Azazel is his enemy. It's likely, therefore, that Azazel is some kind of spiritual being whose presence in the desert region is the extreme opposite of God's holy presence in the Holy of Holies. However, the nature of Azazel's personality is not revealed in Leviticus, likely to avoid the danger that some might be tempted to honor him, end quote. So I think that within the context of the Torah, Azazel is most likely the snake from Genesis 3 who was cast out of God's presence in the wilderness, who is still lurking around seeking to deceive and attempt the Israelites and to foil God's plan. Azazel is just another name for the devil. And I know, I know, all this symbolism is so strange and weird and foreign to us, but to the Israelites, they would have known exactly what all of these things meant back in this time. Um, So to put a modern twist on this ceremony, there was actually one commentator who compared this ceremony to the prank where you take dog poop and you put it in a brown paper bag and you light it on fire and you put it on someone's doorstep. Anyone done this? No? No takers? No volunteers? (laughs) Well, anyway, you light this burning, you know, bag of dog poop on fire, and then you ring the doorbell and you run away as an unfriendly gesture. And then as the person opens the door and they see the fire, they stomp out the, the, the fire, and now they've got dog poop all over their shoes. So I promise I've never done that. I have friends who have. And the whole point of this joke is that when they answer the door, uh, they, they're defiled with the uncleanness of the dog poop. And, and so this commentator, it was so strange. He compared this strange ritual to sending a flaming bag of Israel's sins straight to Satan's front door. Um, if you don't like that, understa- uh, that illustration, I totally understand. So let me give you another one. In this single offering uh, of these two goats, of the slaughter goat and the scapegoat, the Israelites were replaying the story of Adam's fall. Remember, God told Adam and Eve, if they ate from the truth, the fruit of the garden... They would surely die. But when Adam and Eve sinned, God does not kill them. He shows mercy. And instead of killing Adam and Eve, God takes an animal, this innocent, blameless life, and he kills it. He slaughters it to make garments, to cover their nakedness and their shame. And then God sends Adam and Eve away into the wilderness. He exiles them and the serpent away from his presence. So in this deeply symbolic divine play, the slaughter goat, was like the very first sacrifice of the Bible, that sacrifice that died instead of Adam and Eve. And the scapegoat was was exiled from God's presence just like Adam and Eve were. And now the scapegoat is carrying this toxic waste of Israel's sin back to the serpent, back to where they came from. And this single sin offering in the form of two goats, this was not just meant to point backwards to the fall of Adam and Eve, but also forward to a true And better offering to come. It's mind blowing to me that these goats are spoken of as a single offering because when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus is described as fulfilling both the role of the scapegoat and the role of the slaughter goat. Jesus is the one who bore our sins in his body. He carried his cross outside of Jerusalem and suffered outside the camp, outside the gate, to make holy the people through his own blood. And Jesus is also the sinless Lamb of God, slain to take away the sin of the world. And then in Hebrews 9, it tells us that when Christ ascended to heaven and he entered the heavenly temple, the one made without human hands, the one the earthly temple was modeled after, Jesus entered once for all time into the most holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood securing our redemption forever and in this deeply symbolic divine play on that day of atonement the israelites got a glimpse of the perfect sacrifice to come there's one more step in the ceremony the israelites were to surrender all to the lord In verses 23 through 28 aaron offers the final offering of a ram for a burnt offering Remember, the burnt offering was this offering of total surrender and dedication because everything was laid on the altar and burned up. So after atonement was made for the tent and for the people, Aaron had to offer one final offering as an act of worship to dedicate himself and the people to God, saying, we surrender all because the only natural reaction to the grace of God is a life lived surrendering to the Lord. If that does not characterize your life, then you have not truly been forgiven by the grace of Jesus. That's the only natural reaction. And verse 28 is where we should expect this chapter to end. Because by verse 28, all the work is done. Aaron has gone into the tent, he's come out alive, and he's atoned for the sin of Nadab and Abihu. And that should be the end of the story, right? It's not. Because if you look to verses 29 through 34, the Lord commands the Israelites to repeat the ceremony every year. Verse 29 says this is going to be a statute forever, that every year atonement would once again need to be made for both the priests and all the people of Israel. Why? Two reasons. First, because the Israelites were going to sin again. They were going to fail again. They were going to fall again. And second, because no matter how many bulls and goats the priests would offer, it was never enough. No matter how many times the high priest would go into the tent, it could never make the Israelites perfect. And all of this was by design. The sacrifices in the Old Testament could not take away sin. None of them could. All they were meant to do was to point forward to the one sacrifice that could take away sin. This entire ritual, from the priest to the sacrifice to the tent itself, all of this was meant to point to the true and better day of atonement to come, that Hebrews 10 says day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus Our true and better high priest. When he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And that significance of Christ sitting down is so important because in the temple, of all the objects in the temple, there were no chairs. Because the priest's work was never done. The priest never sat down because there was always another sacrifice. There was always more sin to atone for. But when we meet Jesus, we have a man who offers himself as the one sacrifice and then he sits down on the throne and says, it is done. It is taken away. Your sin is finished. The devil has been defeated. The curse has been reversed. Christ has done it all. Jesus is the true and better high priest because at the cross, he paid for all of our sins forever, past, present, and future. Jesus is the true and better day of atonement offering. That's why we don't practice Yom Kippur here at this church. Because Jesus has fulfilled the demands of the day of atonement and the curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom that on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It is finished was his cry as Jesus yelled to And my prayer this morning was that in this story of the first day of atonement, you would be able to find peace with God through the sacrifice the Lord had provided. And by now it should be clear that that sacrifice is Jesus. Because in Leviticus 16, we found seven ways we must approach the Lord. In humility, on his terms, with fear, for atonement, by a scapegoat, to surrender all, and through a better sacrifice. This passage is deep. It is beautiful. It's overflowing with images and allusions to the sacrifice of Christ. But it's also incredibly practical. And this morning, in light of Leviticus 16, I have four pastoral charges. I have four ways you can apply the truths of this passage to your life. First pastoral charge approach the Lord with humility, approach the Lord with humility. The first step on the road to salvation is recognizing that you cannot save yourself, that you are not good enough, that you are a sinner in need of a savior. That's why James 4 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're trying to know the Lord, if you're on a spiritual journey where you want to have a relationship with the Lord, where you want to be reconciled with the Lord, it has to start with that humble posture. Second pastoral charge, approach the Lord with fear. Approach the Lord with fear. If you're not a believer, you should have a very real fear of the judgment of God. The Lord is the judge of all of earth. He is an all-consuming fire, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And let me just encourage you that if you feel that fear, it's healthy. So let it drive you to Jesus, who can save you from that judgment. Because as believers, we're still called to fear the Lord, but in a drastically different way. We do not fear the Lord's judgment, but we do fear his discipline. We do sit in awe of his power and might. We do treat him with honor and reverence, but a biblically informed fear of the Lord is a healthy virtue that we should not neglect to cultivate. Third pastoral charge, approach the Lord through Christ alone. Approach the Lord through Christ alone. If you have humbled yourself, If you've realized your need for a savior, if you fear the judgment of the Lord, then let me tell you, you can do nothing. It does not matter how many good things you do. It does not matter how many church services you attend or how many times you take communion or how many times you've been baptized. But the good news is that Jesus has paid it all. That Jesus has already lived the sinless life you failed to live. He has already died the death you deserve and he has risen from the grave defeating death So that now if anyone confesses their sin, turns from their sin, and puts their faith alone in the sacrifice of Christ, then your sins will be carried as far as the east is from the west. And if you have any more questions about that, please come talk to me. I would love to walk you through what it means to be a Christian and to be forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future. Fourth pastoral charge. Surrender all to the Lord. Approach the Lord to surrender all. What sin are you holding on to? What vice are you clinging to? What are you holding back from the Lord? Because if you've received everlasting life from Christ, if Jesus has forgiven your sins, the only natural response should be to surrender all to him, to pour out your life as an offering to Christ. This is the two-year anniversary of my time here at Horkin Baptist Church, and I'm praying for me to be here for many, many more years because there's still a lot of good work to do here in this church and in Brant Lake. But I recognize also that at the same time, I'm guaranteed nothing in this life. The Lord may take my life tonight. And if if he does, I recognize that he has every right to, and I trust in his wise plan. But in the meantime, my goal as your pastor is to surrender all to the Lord for as long as he'll have me here. And let me encourage you to have the same mindset. Don't waste your life on the American dream or what the world would have to offer you. It is fading and it will not last. And when you get to the end of your life, if you have to give an account for how you live, what are you going to tell him? On a raining morning during World War II, William Hoops of Chattanooga was crouching beside a medic named Kelly. Kelly stuck his head above the protective barrier with binoculars for an instant. And in the moment, Kelly was shot through his neck. William Hoops had some medical training and he frantically tried to save his friend and stop the bleeding. Hoops recalled, he had no words, but his eyes were on me. He knew I was trying to save his life. I tried everything in the world. I could do it. I tried. He looked directly into my face and the last thing he did was to pat me on the arm as if to say, that's all right. And then he died. And in this story, I want to be William Hoops. I want to be able to say to this congregation and this community, I tried everything in the world. I tried so hard. And I want to be Kelly. I want to be able to say to my loved ones when I die, it's all right. To live is gain, or to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that is the measure of a meaningful life. Our success as Christians, our success as a church, does not depend on our numbers. It depends on our faithfulness. And if we seek to pour out our lives as holy offerings to the Lord he will be pleased. And all the people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you that in Christ we may ascend your holy hill. Lord, we are forever thankful for the Lamb of God who makes us perfect by his blood, who has carried our sins outside the camp. And in response to your love, your grace, your mercy, may we offer ourselves as living sacrifices dedicated to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, Amen. amen. Hi, Taylor Callan, pastor of Forkin Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.